As the number of available genetic tests increase, the concern about the use and interpretation of those tests also increases. Are genetic tests reliable, and do the patients and healthcare professionals understand their limitations? What PAs need to know about genetic testing. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, your host, and with me today is Andy Fawcett. Andy has worked as a genetic counselor and public health geneticist since 1987. He is an associate professor in the Department of Human Genetics at Emory University School of Medicine and serves as program coordinator for the Collaboration, Education, and Test Translation Program for the National Institute of Health. Additionally, Andy developed and currently co-leads the Human Genetics Module for the Emory University School of Medicine Physician Assistant Program. Today, we are discussing what PAs need to know about genetic testing. Hi, Andy. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Andy, what has changed for physician assistants that has led to the addition of genetics in their education model? Well, I think a couple of things, Lisa. First is that actually the training programs have changed their requirements. So now genetics is a required component of anyone who started in training beginning last year. Second, because we have mapped the human genome, we know a lot more conditions and we know the genetics involved. So the number of tests is rapidly growing every day. Due to that, you're going to have many patients walk in with questions about testing. We also have a lot of tests that have begun to be offered via a direct-to-consumer model or a model that's actually reaching out to the public rather than going through the clinician. And the difficulty for the clinician there is these patients still want to discuss these results with their clinician. So it's very possible that an individual could walk in and say, I just had this test and I want you to help me understand what it means. Let's talk about those tests. What types of genetic testing are available now? How do patients get these tests? What is the cost? How do they work? There are a couple of different types of tests, and I'm going to try to group them because maybe it'll be easier to talk to them in groups. There are tests that we've classically used in the genetics clinic that genetic counselors have talked about. Usually these are related to conditions that are due to a change in a single gene, what we like to think of as Mendelian genetics. And these are things like the metabolic disorders in the newborn screening, fragile X, cystic fibrosis. And then there are some of those also that instead of predicting disease, predict an increased risk for disease. An example of that would be the testing for the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 mutations related to breast and ovarian cancer. So the first group are those tests that we would use in clinic, and they're usually single gene tests. The second group of testing are tests that are really looking for markers that we found that are associated with disease. And you'll often hear the term SNPs, and these are just points in the genome where we know there's some minor changes and they tend to track with diseases. We've done studies and we've shown that if we take a thousand obese people and a thousand non-obese people and we search their genome for these SNPs, we're going to find certain ones that are of a higher prevalence in the individuals with the obesity. The difficulty with those tests is that often the data is limited. They have not been repeated many times. They haven't been fully studied. So there's less information about them. And those are really the tests that are primarily being marketed directly to the consumer. So you can go on a website and see that those tests are available. So I can go on a website, buy this test, and what's the average cost for these type of tests? 
It depends on which type of test you're thinking about. If we go back to the single gene test, they can range anywhere from $100 to several thousand dollars. And it really depends on the complexity of the gene, you know, really how much material do we have to look at? Are there more than one gene involved? The direct-to-consumer tests, particularly the ones that are looking for the patterns, the changes in the genes, um, range anywhere from about $400 to about $2,000, and they've been dropping in price. So I go online, I order a test. Is there any pre- or post-test counseling that comes along with that? It kind of depends on which company you work with. There are some companies that do use genetic counselors and have geneticists on board, and that's actually one of the things I recommend that anyone consider before they use a particular company is do they have individuals with genetic training involved in their program. Others simply have online material, and most of the education part is good, but they're marketing a test, so it is going to be written in a way that pretty much tries to convince you that this test is for you. Now, when the results come back, some of them simply give you a web password and you go on and retrieve your results. Others actually schedule you a chance to talk to most likely a genetic counselor to go over your results. So it really depends on which company you use. And in general, the more expensive companies, because of the counseling and the support, they're charging more for their test, whereas the companies that are putting it all on the web and leaving it all up to you tend to be the least expensive. So this is where the PA comes in. A patient walks in the room, they have this 30-page genetic testing report. What would be a common-sense approach to utilizing this data with our patients, and how do we do that in 10 minutes? Well, first off, I don't think you can do it in 10 minutes. So one of the things I would recommend is that you talk to the patient about, you know, can they come in at an opportunity where you can spend more time. Second, I think that One of the things you realize is most of these are just risk markers. They're not actual disease gene tests. Often we're not even looking in the gene. We're looking at a marker somewhere near. So this is simply going to say instead of a risk of obesity of, say, 20%, someone now has a 30% risk. I always recommend that you focus on the family history and then see if the family history along with these tests are providing beneficial information. Most of this is going to be related to lifestyle changes and prevention, conditions that people need to think about, which are generally going to be similar for most people. The advantage of looking at both family history and looking at the test results is it may highlight certain areas that someone should focus on, you know, should really try to work on. Let's say you have a patient who comes in who is obese, who smokes, who doesn't exercise, several other conditions. We know that you can't get them to change everything at once. So is there something from their family history and something from this genetic test that you could say, this is what we really ought to start on? So instead of genetic testing, we should spend time fleshing out a three to four generation medical family tree and discussing healthy lifestyle changes. And that would give us a more realistic view of their disease risk. I would agree with that completely, and the reason is because we've been doing family history for a long time. We have a lot of information. We have a lot of data. We know it applies to all populations, and clearly we can see trends in family history and say, you know, this individual um, is at an increased risk for heart disease, so maybe we need to start screening earlier. This individual is at increased risk for, say, colon cancer. Maybe it's just earlier screening. Maybe it's actually considering a genetic test. 
And I often find that when you do construct that family history and you can show an individual how a condition is tracking through the family and what's a little unusual about it, it can be quite empowering, quite motivating for them to actually think about, okay, maybe I really do need to do something different. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Andy Fawcett, Assistant Professor in the Department of Human Genetics at Emory University School of Medicine. We are discussing what PAs need to know about genetic testing. So Andy, why should I have genetic testing? Well, I think first off, going back to the family history, I think if there's something in your family history that puts you at high risk, you should talk to someone with appropriate training about that and then consider testing for that condition. I would say that general testing for general risk, I personally would say let's wait a few years, let's get some more information. The main thing for the family history type conditions, I'll I'll use breast cancer and ovarian cancer as an example. Many women are seriously concerned about their risk for breast cancer, and many that I've talked to over the years have kind of developed their own risk. When you look at their family history, their actual risk may be higher or lower than that. If their risk is higher, they may be a candidate for genetic testing, and that testing can then, if it's positive, would end up in a different set of management. A different type of screening would be considered. They may even consider some surgeries really to dramatically change their risk back to the population risk or even less than that. Let's talk about the results. I recently went to a genetics conference, and I found that the genetic testing reports would flag disease for which a patient's lifetime risk is greater than a certain number, let's say 25%, regardless of whether the average population risk for that same disease was 25%. This seemed a little misleading to me and could scare the patients. What are your thoughts about that? I would agree, Lisa. I think the way we report results, the way we share that information, we haven't figured out how to do that yet. It sounds like the testing you're talking about was more the type that was related to the SNP testing, the genome-wide screening, where you're looking at several risk factors, and you really are just modifying someone's risk. I used to do a lot of work around prenatal testing, and I would tell a couple, well, here's your risk before you have any testing, and here's your risk after the test, and here's the change, and how do you feel about that change? And I think many of the groups aren't following that process Because I would personally say if I walked in the room with a 25% risk and I had a test and it came back with a 22 to 27% risk, it really hasn't done anything. And I really shouldn't be any more alarmed than I was before. And as part of my learning process that week, I saw that this type of testing was creeping into the corporate physical exam and into internal medicine practices. And my thought was, shouldn't this really be managed by someone with a specialty in genetics? I definitely think there should be a genetic connection. There are not enough genetic counselors for every internal medicine office to have one, but there are enough that every internal medicine physician assistant or physician could be linked to one and could have one that could provide them with the correct information. I think why you're seeing it roll into that is those are individuals who are really looking for something that they can do that will make a difference, and they want something that's specific to them. They know all the general public health recommendations, but they really haven't accepted those. So they want to know, is there something that I should be doing that's different? You know, I think we're all looking for the miracle treatment that's going to help us live another 100 years or keep us healthy another 100 years. And I think the medical providers are kind of trying to help them with that. I'm just not sure that testing is ready for that yet. 
Tell us a little bit about genetic counseling. Genetic counselors, in their training, they basically receive a full background in medical genetics, and then they do a lot of clinical practice. And the purpose of genetic counseling, there are a couple of different pieces. The first is what I would describe as risk assessment. So I'm going to take that family history, I'm going to look at your lifestyle, some other things, and I'm going to say, how does your risk or genetic conditions compare to the general population or someone else. If we're talking about risk for birth defects or single gene conditions, you know, the risk could be as high as 50%. And then when we're talking about other things like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, we might say your risk to carry one of these mutations is 10% or 20%, and then that gives you an increased risk. So the first part is risk assessment. Then the second part is determining is, is this person a candidate for testing? Is your testing that we have now today that we know enough about that could be beneficial to this person? And clearly some people come in and they're not candidates for testing. A woman may come in thinking she has a high risk for breast cancer. We look at her family history and she does have an increased risk, but she's really not a candidate for testing. Then the third part of genetic counseling is really helping people make difficult decisions, particularly around prenatal conditions or the decision to be tested for the breast cancer gene and the consideration of a, a prophylactic mastectomy or prophylactic oophorectomy, those are very big decisions, and they're not cut and dried. You know, if you walk into your clinician with a diagnosis of cancer, you're going to want treatment. It's a yes. But if you're talking about something that's going to happen 10 years down the road or you're talking about something that might happen in a future pregnancy, those are difficult decision. So a lot of what genetic counselors do is help someone with the decision process. What's important for you? How do you think about these things? And then if it's in a couple situation, to help the couple talk about that difficult decision. And then lastly, if you do have testing and the results come back, the genetic counselor is there to help you understand those results. So again, like you described earlier, you started with a 25% risk and now you have a 27% risk. Is that really different? What does that mean? Versus you started with a 10% risk and now you have an 80% risk. What are we going to do about that? And finally, who should a PA turn to for information and help with any questions they might have about genetics? I would recommend a genetic counselor or the geneticist. For a genetic counselor, you can find them at the National Society of Genetic Counselors. For a geneticist, the American College of Medical Genetics and both of those websites actually have maps of the U.S. who can help you find the closest person to you. Thank you, Andy, for coming on the show. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thanks for listening.